Welcome to Ghostwriters Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know if you were a fruit tree, what fruit tree would you be? I would be a plum tree. Last episode, I had mentioned a book that I was reading called The Adventures of Amina El Sarafi by Shannon Chakraborty. She's kind of an interesting gal because she grew up Catholic, studied abroad, I think in Egypt, probably other places too, and then converted to the Muslim faith. This book is heavily researched. It's completely fiction, but I'll share a little bit from her author's note because she explains herself here. The Indian Ocean is arguably among the oldest seas in maritime history, witnessed over 5,000 years of humans traveling its shores and crossing its expanse. Pilgrims and pirates, enslaved persons and royalty, traders and scholars. In our modern age, we are accustomed to thinking of continents in land borders. Rarely do we see the sea and its littorals as places of shared culture. But long after the so-called European Age of Exploration, an age that would do more damage to existing Indian Ocean networks and indigenous populations than any such excursion before, the ports of the Indian Ocean were bustling cosmopolitan places where one could find goods and people from all over. Its medieval history has fascinated me since I was an undergrad, first learning of the accounts of the famous Geniza merchants, members of a Jewish diaspora that stretched from North Africa to India. There was something so relatable and human about these often mundane accounts of normal people's lives. People who weren't sultans or generals, but parents purchasing gifts for their kids' weddings, fretting about in-laws and business decisions, and mourning the sudden death of beloved siblings lost at sea. The sort of connections that make the past seem alive. It was always my dream to write a book set in this world, to pull on the stories that had resonated so deeply, and when I first began, I was thrilled to finally have a proper work excuse to throw myself into research. Indeed, I believe the phrase, I'm going to make it completely historically accurate except for the plot, came out of my mouth at least once. For as I have been reminded again and again and again, history is a construct, ever-changing and always subjective. Not only does it reveal the biases of its teller, audience, and intention, but also there is often much we simply don't know. While the past decade has seen astonishing developments in the study of the medieval Indian Ocean, I have no doubt that by the time this book is published, some detail I believed factually sound will be disproved. I have endeavored to make it historically believable, then trying to balance scholarship with the spirit of the story. I'm still reading this book, which I had mentioned in our previous episode. I love it, and I'm going slow with it because I want to savor it. This scene, immediately I knew I wanted to share. So to set it up, Amina El Sarafi has been a pirate since she was 16. She learned about seafaring from her grandfather, who would tell her stories as a child, which then kind of fed this desire to become a pirate. We meet her when she is in her 40s. She's since had a daughter who's 10 years old. There's a lot of secrecy on who the father is. But for 10 years, she's gone into retirement slash hiding, and she is summoned out of retirement by a noblewoman who seeks her at her secreted away house that is in ill repair. The sum is 1 million dinars. She's thinking, okay, this will take care of not only the rest of my life, but also the rest of my family's life. My daughter will not want for money. And so she says, okay, what's the job? The noblewoman, Salima, has a 16-year-old granddaughter who was kidnapped. She was kidnapped by a former 
former mercenary who is also a Frank. So he is from Western Europe, has Germanic influence. The Frank, whose name is Falco, he came to Salima wanting to peruse her artifacts. She comes from old money in Iraq and he wanted to possibly buy these items from her. Uh, Essentially, she dismissed him as a madman and kicked him out. And now her granddaughter, Dunya, is gone. And she believes him to be the sole suspect. So Amina bargains with her and gives her these contentions. Four months and a hundred thousand dinars, regardless of whether I'm successful. I expect 10,000 dinars to be paid to my family before I leave, and an additional 90,000 if I learn where Dunya is being held. If I return her, I get the rest. It was a ludicrous counteroffer. And so Salima takes her offer and says, Four months, Nakuda. I will hold you to that. And Nakuda, there's a nice little glossary in the back, is a ship owner or authority at sea. I think of them as a captain. I don't know if that's wrong or right, but certainly a ship owner. And she does have a ship, but she hasn't manned it for a decade. Left it in the employ of her first mate, Timbu, who we will meet. So Amina has to track down some of her former crewmates. She captures her old ship, which is a story in and of itself. And she's learning as she's meeting up with some of her old crewmates that they have been in contact with either Falco or an agent of Falco. And she's thinking that's eerily coincidental. So when Timbu, her first mate, learns that she's seeking information about Falco, he's like, weird, I actually know an agent of his, or at least a former agent, or an agent who's trying to get out of his employee. Let me see if he's still on this island, and if he is, I'll set up a meeting. So as it turns out, he is still on that island, and he does set up a meeting. And so here we are, Amina and her first mate, Timbu, are meeting up in this seedy bar with Laith, the agent to Falco, who claims to have just recently left his employee. The tavern was a sorry place, one that all but announced it preferred gamblers and highwaymen to merchants and pilgrims. Constructed from a motley assortment of scavenged black tents, patched sailcloth, and palm fronds that had been stacked, nailed, or otherwise tied to crumbling mud brick walls and scorched wooden columns, it seemed like the previous building had died a violent, fiery death and had a ghoul of one resurrected in its stead. There was a smell. Burned hair, dead fish, emanating from the open entrance, and vomit stains splattering the dust. Falco Balalamata must pay well, I noted dryly. His last name is Palamanestra, and you have taken me to worse places. Timbu ushered me through the open doorway. Come. The tavern wasn't any more appealing on the inside. Perhaps it kicked up when traders visited for some nighttime licentiousness, but right now it was occupied by about a half dozen sleepy men in various states of intoxication and poor hygiene. Fishbones and nutshells cracked underfoot, the smell of hashish and sweat heavy in the stale air. The poor construction and threadbare roof meant the light was good, however, a benefit in a place that looked like patrons often got knifed in shadowy corners. Good, unless you were the one who needed to do the knifing, that is. I followed Timbu to a low table in the back, surrounded by stained cushions and half-hidden by a threadbare curtain. It all but declared, Come here to plot your harebrained criminal conspiracies. My estimation of Laith fell to lower depths. Laith appeared to hold similarly misinformed expectations of me, however, for I had no sooner stepped around Timbu than Laith's eyes rose in slow horror to take in my head nearly scraping the low ceiling. He jerked back. Timbu, you fucking liar. You told me you had a client, not the sea witch herself. He shot to his feet. I'm leaving. You're staying. I swept my robe aside to reveal the weapons at my waist. And be warned that the sea witch does not like when people speak of her as though she is not there. Nor does she enjoy learning those same people are spreading coin to hunt her down for a foreigner. I pressed him back into his cushion with little effort. Sit. 
Lath sat, shooting me a look I believe he intended to be rage, but mostly appeared as though he was trying not to shit himself. Damn, either the stories Falco and his people had heard about me were particularly creative, or there was more to this situation than Timbu suspected. I could read a mariner's hard life in Lath's features. His skin was mottled and prematurely lined by the relentless sun, and his gnarled hands and joints were swollen with arthritis. One eye had turned cloudy, and he had the gaunt, uneven body of a man whose diet had swung between feasting and malnourishment. His hair and beard, both unruly, were entirely white. My grandfather had looked much the same at the end of his life, but he had people to care for him. In a sweat-stained juba in need of mending, his body hunched in suspicion. Laith did not strike me as someone with people. He looked like someone sick of all this, ready to exchange a life of criminality for a quiet hut by the sea. I settled on the opposite cushion. The old leather creaked beneath me. God only knew what might have been crawling out from beneath its fraying seams. Timbu, get our guest something for his nerves. I didn't take my gaze off Falco's former agent, and when Timbu left, I continued. Now, I mean you no harm. Indeed, nothing would please me more than to leave you a newly wealthy man, but we are going to talk no matter what, understand? Lath was visibly fuming even while trembling. I want a hundred dirhams. A hundred dirhams or nothing. It was a ludicrous sum to demand for a few moments of his time. Salima had paid me enough of a deposit that I could spread some of it around, but I had not come that prepared. I can give you twenty now and then get the rest from my ship. Deal? Laith glowered but said nothing, crossing his arms over his chest and jutting out his chin like that was supposed to impress me. Until I reached into the purse hanging from my belt and he jumped again. I dropped two silver coins on the sticky table between us. Asshole, it would take little convincing for me to leave you with a blade between your ribs instead of Durham's. So, as I said earlier, we are going to talk, yes? Laith swallowed loudly and plucked up the coins. What do you want to know? I want to know why the hell some Frank is so interested in me and my crew. Because he wants to hire you, lunatic. You and the rest of your band of merry thieves. Falco fancies himself some sort of scholar of the occult and has visions of sailing all over the Indian Ocean, building a collection of magical talismans. A source had convinced him you could all but walk on water and that there was no Nakuda as skilled a tracker. A scholar of the occult? My skin prickled. I did not like the sound of that. Who? Who what? Who was Falco's source? Laith rubbed his throat. God only knows. He is a violent, unpredictable man who likes his secrets and has surrounded himself with even more violent, more secretive men. It could have been one of his fighters or it could have been a stranger in a brothel. Falco did not say and I did not ask. Timbu rejoined us, handing Laith half a coconut shell filled with a muddy liquid I didn't bother trying to identify. I've learned the hard way in my travels that people will attempt to ferment anything at least once, and sometimes only once, if the results are dire. The smell of this concoction was enough to roil my stomach. His fighters? Timbu asked, sounding alarmed. His fighters, Laith confirmed. He has a pack of them, the nastiest soldiers for hire he could find. He gulped down half of his drink and immediately began coughing. I leaned back to avoid the spray of spittle and considered all that. The news about more vicious mercenaries aside, who in God's name could have been Falco's source? And so Amina is going through this mental checklist of her crew that could possibly be an inside man with Falco. Delilah was the most enigmatic person I had met in my life, trained from childhood to cover her tracks. Timbu had concealed his past even from Yusuf, a man he clearly loved. Asif was dead nearly ten years, and though he might have been foolish enough to share details in his letters home, he hadn't ever seemed to have found anyone in his life besides us and his family. Of our core group that only left Majed. But as Timbu has said, my old navigator probably would have cut out his own tongue before selling us out. So who then? 
Lathe took another sip from his cup and shivered as if it had gone down with a burn. By God, what do they put in these drinks? He glared at me like it was my fault. Get to the point, El Serafi. We both know what you're after. That was news to me, but I decided to play the hand he offered. I'm looking for a girl he is rumored to have kidnapped. Lathe burst into choking laughter. Oh, it's the girl you're after. You know of whom I speak? The little rich girl out of Aiden? Lathe withdrew a rag and made a disgusting, wet, herking noise as he coughed something foul into its depths. Hope rose in my chest. That's the girl, yes. When Lathe glanced pointedly at my purse, I rolled my eyes but handed over another two dirhams. If he could give me solid information about Dunya, I would happily shower him in silver. Tell me what you know. He snatched up the coins. I know the family is from Iraq, though all that's left of them is a bitch of a grandmother and the girl. One of those old clans trying to restart in Yemen by selling off their treasures, you know. Such treasures supposedly included the kind of artifacts Falco liked, so I set up a meet. And how did that go? Spectacularly wrong. Had the grandmother been spryer, I think she would have tried to run Falco through with a sword when she realized he was a Frank. She started shouting about him being a spy and ruining her family's reputation. We were lucky her guards settled merely for throwing us out. I figured she was a dead end, but then the granddaughter tracked us down in the street. She said she wanted to make a deal. My mouth nearly fell open in shock. The granddaughter wanted to make a deal? Falco was just as disbelieving, trust me. The girl was rambling about needing to leave, suggesting all sorts of prizes she could give him. We tried to shake her off, but then she offered something that halted me in my tracks. Which was... I prodded when Leith fell silent. His taunting bloodshot eyes met mine, the moon of Saba. There was a long moment of stunned silence between us. Timbu spoke first. Horseshit. Ah, so the tales of the moon have made it to Malabar, Leith snorted. Falco knew only a little. I suspect it was my reaction that stopped him cold, convinced him to listen, and then strike her bargain. I'm still not certain he understands what he's after. But you, Al Serafi, I bet you know the stories. Of course I knew the stories. Everyone along these shores grew up on the legends of the Moon of Saba. The largest pearl in the world, a miniature moon said to have been snatched from the sky by a lovelorn fairy and gifted to Queen Bilky, who made it the centerpiece of her crown. A gem believed to bestow upon its owner countless wishes, supernatural sight, and unending good fortune. A pearl that had brought mighty empires to their knees, foolhardy kings to madness, and had finally been lost when warring sea jinn destroyed one of their island kingdoms in a battle to possess it. There are dozens more stories, hundreds, especially among the pirates and fortune seekers with whom I've spent my life. We all love a good tale of blood and treasure. I hardly knew what to question first. Did I ask just how developed and possibly dangerous was Falco's interest in the occult? Inquire deeper in the supposed mythical treasures Salima had failed to mention? Demand proof that instead of Dunya's being kidnapped, she had apparently willfully joined the Frank? I started with none of that. Where, I growled. Where did they go? A place whose name was enough to put me off his employ for good. A damned fool quest across dangerous terrain for a gem that is more likely than not a lie? No thank you. Lath leaned back like he wanted to project confidence, but then began coughing again, his face getting ruddier by the moment. Are you alright, man? Timbu reached for his water skin. Do you need some water? Lath grunted. I'm fine, let's finish this. His red-limbed gaze fixed on mine again. You want me to tell you where to find Falco? Then hand over the entire purse right now. I hesitated and he sneered. I'm the only one who knows Al Sarafi. The rest of the men bought into his nonsense and left alongside him. The prospect of putting a blade in Lath's ribs was growing more tempting by the moment, but we both knew I had few cards to play. I could not kill the one person who knew where Falco went. I tossed the purse on the table. Talk. Lath took the small bag, hefting it in his palm as though to evaluate the weight. An island. An island? A big one. 
I smiled as though he were joking and then lunged for his throat, putting my dagger to his neck. I'm going to need more than that. But give the man credit, he didn't back down, wheezing instead. You promised me a hundred dirhams. This purse is not that. Get the rest of your money and then you'll get your details. Son of a whore, you'll have drowned in your own spittle before. Timbu laid a hand on my wrist. It's fine, Amina. Go back to the ship for the remainder. I will stay with him. Resisting the urge to slap Laith upside the head, I shoved to my feet. His hacking cough and smug expression followed me as I stalked out, burning with rage. I did not get far. There was a strangled, raspy groan, and then... Amina! Timbu cried. I whirled around. Laith had fallen to his knees on the dirty floor and was clutching his throat. His eyes were wide with panic, foam gathering on his darkening lips. Fuck, was he actually choking now instead of just gargling his own backwash? I rushed over. What was in the drink you gave him? I asked urgently. Alcohol? Timbu spun on a small, squirrely man who had frozen across the tavern. The barkeep, judging from the dusty brown jug and coconut shell he'd been filling. What did you give me? Just date liquor, the barkeep stammered, giving me and my kanjar a terrified look. The same as them have been drinking. Laith's face was turning red. I hauled him up by his shoulders and rolled him over my knee, cuffing his back with my fist to try to dislodge whatever was stuck in his throat. Did he put anything in his mouth? Nothing I saw. Timbu joined me in pounding Laith's back. Falco's former recruiter couldn't speak and was scrabbling so desperately at his throat that he was gouging his own skin, blood dripping down his fingertips. His eyes bulged, his vicious and ominous purple-tinged crimson. I stuck his back once more, and a small object finally flew out, landing in the dust. Blood and mucus coated its silvery surface, but the shape was instantly recognizable. It was a single silver durham. With what seemed like a last burst of strength, Laith shoved a finger down his throat, but it did nothing. With a final gurgle, he collapsed in his own sick, his eyes vacant and staring. His lips fell open, silver glimmering past his teeth. The bulges beneath the skin of his swollen neck, they were all coin-shaped. It isn't possible. It isn't. My heart galloped with fear, but I had to know. Swapping my dagger for my blessed iron knife, I prodded Laith's dead hand with the blade, teasing free the object still clutched between his fingers. It was the purse of Durham's I had given him. The now empty purse of Durham's. A scream wrenched me back to the present, the nearest man having looked up from his hashish-induced stupor long enough to take in Laith's grisly appearance. Timbu gasped, Amina. But then the barkeep screeched as well, the rest of the patrons shoving closer. Before anyone could stop us, I seized Timbu's arm and yanked him to his feet. This tavern might be on the rougher side, but I was not getting caught with a man who choked to death on a dozen silver coins. We were out of the door the next moment. Timbu stumbled at my side as we hightailed it down the sandy road. Amina, wait! Amina, stop! He pulled from my grip, staggered into the bushes, and promptly vomited. I spared a single glance to make sure no one else was around and then collapsed myself. I sat in the dirt, my head in my hands, until Timbu rejoined me, falling to the ground at my side. Oh fuck, he said hoarsely. Those coins he choked on? Were they ours? I could barely speak, but managed. I think so. How? I don't know. But then some of the crew's wilder gossip returned to me. Falco was supposedly obsessed with loyalty. People said he made his men sign all sorts of magical pacts or something, promising retribution if they betrayed him. I whispered, Laith was betraying him. Some of the men, that they said that there were rumors the Frank had unnatural powers. Timbu gave me a wild look. 
You think Falco did that? He asked, jabbing a hand in the direction of the tavern. The dry desert air teased at my face, a mocking whisper on the breeze. I wanted to tell Timbu no. I wanted to retreat into denial about what I had just witnessed, the death I might have unwillingly caused, and flee back to my ship to the world I knew. But I was the Nakuda. I did not get to run from situations I had brought others into. I swallowed loudly. Yes, I fear the rumors about his interest in the occult may have been understating things just a bit. Timbu looked like he was going to be sick again. Gods, Amina, what did we get ourselves into? You hear stories about witchcraft like that, but before Rake... Don't say his name, I burst out. Please, not now. Timbu looked away, wringing his hands. Then what's next? Large Island could mean a hundred such places. Do we report back to Lady Salima? Do you think she knew the Frank could do these, these things? Or about the Moon of Saba? Maybe that's what she's actually after. My mind was still spinning. The revelation about the Moon of Saba had been immediately dwarfed by the revelation that Falco the aspiring sorcerer was suddenly less aspiring and more lethally capable. I mean, yes, the Moon of Saba, if it existed, would be an astonishing score worth far more than a million dinars. But Salima didn't strike me as the type to dream about legendary gems. She had her gaze firmly set on the here and now, on Dunya's safety and her family's honor. And the Moon of Saba hadn't been Laith's only surprise. No, I said slowly, anger coursing through me as I realized it. I think Salima offered that money because of what Laith said about Dunya cutting a deal with Falco. I wiped the bloody knife against my leg and rose to my feet, helping Timbu up. And I think it's about time we check in with our client about what else she's been keeping a secret. Lots of intrigue there. This book has it all. History, pirates, dark magic, seedy deals... Just the vision of how you can see the ribbing of the coins in his throat. And at first I thought she was going to take her knife and cut them out and take them, but she just left. It really speaks for just how jarring this event was, coming from a formidable pirate who has never encountered something such as this. And Amina is a robust woman. She's tall, she's thick, she's got these huge biceps on her, and it seems like everyone who has heard about her recognizes her sight unseen, which is really what got her into this whole mess. She was immediately recognized by Salima, even though Amina tried to play it off. Oh, I don't know who you're talking about. Or that woman you're looking for, she's not here. And Salima says, I know better. I know the stories that have been told about you and you fit that description. I really like how subtle his choking starts. First, it's just a wet cough or clearing the throat and you dismiss it as this dirty atmosphere. Maybe he's getting over a sickness and then it escalates to him coughing wetly into his handkerchief and actually hawks something substantial up into it. And so then I'm wondering, okay, is this some sort of chronic illness? Maybe that's why he wants to get out of the business because he's falling ill and just kind of wants to focus on his health. And it just becomes gradually more and more alarming. And so in the midst of their bargaining, we have this man's imminent death coming closer and closer to a head. It's just so brilliant. And I love how she writes. I love her characters. Amina has really stolen my heart. I think she is such a badass. So cool. She's constantly being reminded of this past and once she's out there doing it again, she's like, ah, I've missed this. I'm excited to see how everything pans out. If there's something that you'd like us to share, please email us at gwritersanon at gmail.com and we'll catch you guys next week.